Well, hello, um, and welcome, and all that good stuff. And we are going to start, as uh, Caitlin was telling us, a new sermon series on the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. And um, we're just going to cover a little bit today. Um, but we're going to be taking plenty of breaks along the way as we do our Bible study, and we'll mostly be covering much bigger chunks than this. So don't panic when I say we're just doing four verses today, the first four verses of the longest book in the New Testament. That does not set a pattern. Uh, Luke 1, 1 to 4 deserve special treatment because they're actually Luke's own introduction to his gospel. We also need to spend a little bit of time getting into the right frame of mind even before we approach the introduction. At the time of writing, a great deal of context could be taken for granted, and four verses was quite enough introduction. But as modern readers, we stand in the constant danger of overlaying our own very different context on our reading. What we need is what we might call a bit of an origin story. What is the nature of this gospel? Who wrote it? When, why, and to whom? It's been said that a good doctor only prescribes treatments that will benefit the whole patient. They won't, for example, uh, give you a Veruca treatment that's going to give you cancer. And it's unfortunate that so much of the church is church's teaching takes a far less holistic view of that, taking small verses out of context. And there's some value in that but we make a terrible mistake if we think that's what the verse actually means. The Bible wasn't written as a series of short topical epigrams, and nor should it be read that way. So this morning I want to offer just a couple of broad principles for reading Luke. But I'd also encourage you during the week to either read through, even if it's just a skim read, uh, the entire book, or maybe listen to an audio book of it. Even a skim reading will highlight some ideas and recurring themes um, that will be important in the reading, uh, the more detailed reading that we're going to do. And it never fails to surprise me either how I come back to a Bible passage that I might know really well and fresh challenges and uh, fresh ideas spring off the page that I've never noticed before. So in my own speed reading of Luke a fortnight ago, some of the ideas that leapt off the page to me uh, were the following. And I'm glad to say that my commentaries seem broadly to agree with me, which is very, very good of them. They're obviously learning something. Uh, A, the Holy Spirit is described as being upon or filling people. That's quite unusual. Angels, they're extremely unusual. The kingdom of God, the warfare that, that of that kingdom, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil the reversal of worldly values in general, particularly as Jesus continually commends service and warns against riches, Jesus' continual refusal to value people who overvalue themselves already, and his contrasting grace towards the last, the least, and the lost. And finally, Luke's constant strong affirmation of the Jewish faith even when he's talking about Jesus' frequent forays into the Gentile world. Now, that's just what the list that I jotted down. You'll probably come up with your own um, as you read through it yourselves. As many of us know, this gospel is just volume one of a two-part book, the second being the Acts of the Apostles. Now, Greek scholars all seem to agree that Luke Acts, taken as, as one, stands above almost 
all the rest of the New Testament in terms of uh, a literary work. So it's no surprise that many of the themes that are going to occur in Acts have already been introduced in Luke. Like Luke, Acts majors on human beings filled with the Spirit of God. It frequently relates the decisive intervention of angels. It's all about the proclamation of the kingdom. And it frequently mentions the way God's kingdom clashes with the devil's. It often displays the same sort of values inversion that we see in the gospel, perhaps particularly when it comes to the persecution of God's main man, St. Paul. And of course, it also details frequent clashes between the gospel and the official Judaism, even as St. Paul himself, self-proclaimed Pharisee of the Pharisees, takes the gospel into the Gentile world. Now, none of that is to say that Luke is a mere preamble to Acts, very far from it. Rather, as we can see from the introduction to Acts, this book, referred to as the former treaties, concerns all that Jesus began to do and teach until he ascended into heaven. Acts then concerns all that Jesus continued to do through his disciples after he ascended into heaven. Both volumes are addressed to a particular person, one Theophilus. However, there's a tantalizing ambiguity here since that name simply means friend of God. So the real addressee might not be one individual, one individual most excellent Theophilus at all. It might mean every single friend of God, including us sitting here today. I think in many ways I prefer the second option. Because when I read this book, treating myself as being addressed as an excellent friend of God, I find it difficult not to try and be one. From the outset then, Luke writes his version of Jesus' life very much with a view to covering more recent events in Acts. Together the two affirm a strong continuity of mission and values before and after Jesus ascended into heaven. It's rather like the now and not yet kingdom of God, which Jesus proclaims as being right here, right now, so close you can touch it. And he also teaches the apostles and disciples to pray, let your kingdom come. So it's now, and it's also not yet. This is a gospel which speaks very emphatically of the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, but also of much more still to come. It's hard to put an exact date on any New Testament writings, and Luke Acts is no exception to that. That makes it rather difficult to know what precisely was happening in the church at the time Luke was writing. So precise conclusions about what he meant, his exact purpose, are always somewhat speculative and to be taken with a pinch of salt. That is, apart from what he says in the four verses we're about to study. But one vital principle, I think, which we should remember throughout, is that Luke's concern is not to teach theology. It's to tell a story, as truthfully as he can. Luke 1, 1 to 4, in the contemporary literary style of the time, sets out in a brief preamble the writer's credentials, his sources, and his purpose. And what we see here is not a theological aim. It is a historical one. Luke nowhere actually puts his name to this book any more than he does a date, but the earliest and most reliable traditions of the church make no doubt at all that the author is indeed the beloved physician Luke, 
to whom Paul refers in Colossians 4.14. In fact, for a while, Acts, um, in Acts, Luke accidentally includes himself in the narrative, saying not Paul did such and such, but we did so and so. Luke was apparently a Gentile believer, and the name Theophilus is also a Greek name, so that implies a non-Jewish uh, writer and readership. So when we open this gospel, we're looking into the mind of the early Gentile Christian. In this book, probably written 30 to 40 years after the ascension of Jesus, we have privileged access, as it were, to one side of a conversation between two of these early Gentile Christians. Now let's see what more light this short introduction can shed on the who, the where, and the why. And I'm just going to grab my water. So let's read together um, the first four verses of Luke's Gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as though who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, simply taking these four verses in turn, it seems to me this introduction speaks of a finished work a faithful witness, a full account, and a faith affirmed. First, the finished work. Verse 1 tells us that by the time of writing, various accounts of Jesus' life and teachings were already circulating. And if we read between the lines, it seems that Luke doesn't think much of some of them. Now, that doesn't include Mark and Matthew, which the scholars agree both predate this gospel and provide its principal sources. Luke is writing his own account, both because he believes there's more to say and because certain extant versions of the gospel were dangerously inaccurate. The sort, that, the sort of book that people like Dan Brown like to uh, grab hold of and run with. Stupid. In, um, so in challenging those inaccurate gospels, Luke is leaning really heavily on his relationship with, or his reputation with, the reader. That might imply a definite friendship with a definite person, Theophilus, um, or the fact, witness Colossians 4.14 again, that he was a well-known figure and trusted, a trusted one among the churches that Paul had planted. So as a reliable historian, he records what he has learned and experienced both about Jesus and then about the early church plants. But in verse 1, notice he doesn't merely speak of the things that have happened among us. Instead, he uses a long, unpronounceable Greek word that means the things having been completely carried out among us. It's a series of fulfilled tasks, a to-do list thoroughly ticked and completed. But he's not suggesting there's nothing left to do. If anything, the rather open-ended ending to Acts leaves the reader to guess, for example, whether or not Paul ever made it to Spain, as was definitely his purpose. And if you ever go to Tarragona in eastern Spain, you'll find that they're perfectly certain that he did and planted churches there. 
So it's almost as if Luke is inviting every one of us to write our own page of Acts, describing what further things have been fully accomplished in and through our own lives with Jesus. I think this idea of fulfillment always begs the question, what's really been finished and what still remains to be done? If I were writing my own page of Acts, I would point to the planting of this church. That's done, finished, tick. For what that's worth. But of course the story doesn't end there. Now Jim and Rachel are leading the church into what's next for us. And over the years to come, we hope and pray that many more lives will be fed and nourished and uh, encouraged and sometimes transformed by the continuing ministry of the church which we planted. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, one planted, another watered, but God gave the increase. As each of us writes our own page of acts, whether that's going to be in academe, in business, public service, teaching, sports, the arts, or the church, or anything else, let's always keep in mind the importance of our page and everybody else's in God's eyes. And for those of us who are already retired, or shortly to retire, I think that once we turn the page on one completed life's work, we're still left holding the pen. Our last word is yet to be written. And let that last sentence be more than, then he retired and was never seen again. (laughs) Just as Acts is open-ended, so the close of this gospel too doesn't just speak of Jesus ascending into heaven, fulfilling the Old Testament and completing his work on earth. It also foretells his continuing role and that of his disciples. Luke 24, 49 reads, Jesus speaking, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but remain in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Then he descends into heaven and they don't see him anymore. Last thing they see is the soles of his sandals. A page has been turned, but there's still a great deal more to come. In this gospel, we're going to read about a lot of things that were fully accomplished, but each one of those events must lead on to a future in which there's still much to do. Jesus healed the blind man, job done, tick. That's the part Luke tells us. But the blind man, ex-blind man's job is far from done. He's got a life to leave. Um, Jesus challenged the rich young ruler. Job done, tick. That's the part Luke tells us. But that young man had a lot of soul-searching to do. And we don't know what conclusion he came to eventually. What if that rich young ruler was actually Theophilus? We don't know. Number two, the faithful witness. As verse two reminds us, neither Luke nor his readers were actual eyewitnesses to the events of the gospel story. And Luke himself was only personally present for quite a small portion of Acts, as far as we know. But in a world where books were cripplingly expensive and very relatively few people could read, they were much better than we are today at passing on stories word for word as they'd been told, unaltered. As in some parts of the world today, the gospel they received was almost entirely spoken, not written. It was a story told either by eyewitnesses like John or by faithful preachers like Paul. 
And Luke has had the opportunity to hear the same story from many different sources. Now he's seeking to set down in writing all the elements he's been able to trace back to credible sources, both written and spoken. As we saw in 1 John, which we finished last week, there was a pressing need to reaffirm the gospel as originally preached by Paul and others. The false teachers of the day cast doubt on the divinity of Christ or on his humanity. They've cast doubt on the salvation of the Gentiles, to name but three heresies. Writing after Mark and Matthew, we'll notice that Luke often includes additional material. That's not because he made it up. It's because he's had time to satisfy himself that these parts too are true and important. As Theophilus compares Luke's account with the oral tradition he's heard, he can be sure that the gospel as he received it was quite correct. Three, a full account. In verse three, Luke sets out his credentials as a historian. We know that he's personally lived with Paul and his gospel. But he says he's also traced, the Greek word can even mean investigated, his subject matter over a very long period. Over those years, he sought the evidence of eyewitnesses, He's gathered up oral accounts, as they're repeated, and he's referred heavily to Mark's and Matthew's Gospels. Now that he comes to write his own account, he's pretty confident that it's going to be a complete one. The word translated orderly doesn't necessarily mean a strict chronological order, but it certainly implies uh, clarity and purpose. But I think the form of address is also worth noting. If most excellent Theophilus is really a single individual, then he's obviously an important one. It's the same form of, form of address that uh, Paul uses to um, tetrarchs and prelates and people like that, um, ambassadors and what have you. Uh, he might even, some scholars suggest, have funded Luke's research, in which case these four verses would be quite in order in literary form as a dedication. But of more interest to me is the fearless way in which this gospel, written obviously to a wealthy, powerful person, places the kingdom of God above all earthly kingdoms, warns against riches, promotes outcasts, and praises service over power. So there's a respect for the reader here, but there's no compromise on Jesus' life and message. Fourth and last, a faith affirmed. Here in a very few words is Luke's central purpose and what we should get out of our reading. He's not trying to teach anything new. He's just wanting to confirm everything Theophilus already knows about Jesus and the kingdom of God. Did Jesus really hang out with the powerless and tell rich young men to give away everything they had? Did he really touch lepers and heal them? Did he raise the dead? Do you accept a, a criminal's death when he had the power to overthrow the entire Roman Empire? Did he rise from the dead and ascend into heaven? Was he really responsible for all that Pentecostal craziness in Acts 2? And does he really still empower us, his people, to prophesy, to heal, to cast out demons? Well, Theophilus can select yes to all. And just a footnote but I think a vital one. Evangelical Christians often tend to reduce what we call the gospel 
to an individual believing in Jesus and praying the prayer. Well, important as that might be, Luke clearly doesn't see it that way. For him, every one of these moments of, of, of teaching and miracle and actions of Jesus are part of the good news. The inversion of worldly values, the mustard seed kingdom, this outbreak of miracles, this God become man, this victory that looks like a defeat, this servant king, this promise of his coming again. This whole story, not just the cross and resurrection, is the good news of Jesus. And in Acts, Luke is going to go on to show how those same values, the same power, the same teaching, continued what Tyre de Chardin beautifully called the work, the slow work of God. Reconciling all things to himself. In just a moment, there's going to be an opportunity to come forward and receive prayer for healing, comfort, direction, everything else the Holy Spirit wants to do among friends of God. But as we set out on our study of Luke, it seems to me a good time to pray especially for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, which is so evident in this gospel. We're all going to need that power if we are to continue the works and wonders contained in this book then each one of us can add our own page to the book of Acts. So, most excellent Theophilus. As the band comes back and begins to play, just feel free to come forward as soon as you like, and we'll pray for you. Why don't you stand with me right now, and uh, I'll pray. Holy Spirit, come and make your presence known to us. I pray that right now, even before anyone comes forward, you'll be ministering to your children. Fill us, Lord. Overcome our weaknesses and failures and empower us to do the service of the kingdom. Would you speak to each heart now about what you want to do in their lives and uh, whether they shouldn't just come forward and receive some prayer for it. God bless you. Come, Lord. Amen.